Happening now, we're going to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. It is February 28th, 2018, and this is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 87. And my name is Jason Neifer. I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that's located in rainy, snowy, icy Missoula, Montana, where we've been having some bizarre on-again, off-again winter weather here. Um, and joining me, as always, is Dr. Wes Fryer. Wes, how is the weather in your neck of the woods? We had some snow days last week, and we were back up into the 70s, and who knows if uh, winter will will return. It's going to, I think, dip into the maybe the 30s or the 40s tonight with a cold front. Your microphone sensitivity may be just a, a shade bit on the uh, strong side. I don't know if the device you're on allows for that adjustment, so it does sound okay, but if uh, there's a way to touch that down a slight bit. Um, I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. Excited to, as always, get to talk with Jason here on the EdTech Situation Room about the week's recent news and the educational lens through which we generally tend to view such things. No and conferences this week for you, I, I take it, Jason. Back. No, that, that's correct. Um, I'm actually going, I, I, but I will be presenting, I guess, the uh, uh, NROC Projects member meeting is next week in Monterey, California. So I will be attending that event. Um, and it's a great event every year where I get to talk to a lot of like-minded uh, K-12 and higher education professionals. And I think I've mentioned Ed Ready Montana, the Ed Ready Project in, statewide Ed Ready Project in the state of Montana, but NROC is the developer of Ed Ready. So it's an opportunity to meet with a lot of our colleagues and talk a lot about, um, you know, great ways to use technology to make students uh, uh, be able to access content in an easier and more accessible way. So, um, and I, I guess I, now I'm thinking about, I am presenting at that conference next week. So um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to visit, um, uh, to visit friends and colleagues there. So do you have any upcoming events, Wes? We do have the sixth annual EdTech, or sorry, EdCamp OKC, which is going to be on Saturday, March 3rd. And I just was checking. We have 262 registered. And wow. luckily the snow was in the ice, more than snow, um, was uh, was last week. So we used to be the last Saturday of February and did have some icy and snowy weather come in. So the first weekend in March has been what we have kind of stuck with, but excited for that and uh, definitely excited for some more STEM discussions. There's a conference I've learned about that's going to be happening locally this summer uh, with a STEM consortium and uh, eager to talk with folks about digital citizenship and other assorted topics. So looking forward to that. Okay. Well, this is the EdTech Situation Room, and we like to take the news from across the technology spectrum and give it kind of an educational twist and, and, and take a look at through an educational lens. And Wes, where would you like to start this week um, in the varied stories of the technology world? You know, I actually like that article that you put in about Facebook talking about uh, facial recognition. So this is coming from Wired Magazine. Now, that's kind of weird. It says February 29th, so it's tomorrow. Oops. No, no, it would have been today. It's not leap year. So it's today. Today's Facebook. Um, and the article is, which, by the way, I listened to a number of these on Pocket as I was being the chauffeur for the family tonight. Nice to be able to listen to your articles if you don't mind the digitized voice, which I don't. Um, it's it's talking about how you can turn off these features Um I have a quick story. When I was in Ohio a couple weeks ago, I interviewed some students about the scratch projects they were doing, took a photograph of them, had permission to post this online. When I posted to Facebook, it identified one of the students who I had never met before and did not know with first and last name tagging him. And so I was like, yikes, I think I'll go wow. ahead and delete that tag. So I was thinking about that when I read this article. And what it's suggesting is that people may want to turn it off because it may be creepy, but, and I haven't found this yet, and I was just trying this in, in my Facebook, <clears throat> there is something called catfishing, and I learned about this because of Alec Kuros uh, mentioning this, and it's a... My eighth grader, my 14-year-old, knew what it was, you know, that when, when somebody's trying to pretend to be you using your pictures, and sometimes um, there are cases of uh, males uh, pretending to be different males and then trying to romantically interact with uh, with uh, women and, you know, eventually trying to get them to give them money and feel sorry for them. And in some cases, you're 
know, picture can be used and you can have completely fake, you know, profiles, uh, being created about your name. So I actually thought this is a good thing. I'm glad that Facebook is giving us the ability, I guess, to opt in, opt out. Um, it said it used to be based on a tagging feature that you could choose in 2013. Anyway, I haven't, I have not found, maybe I don't have any pictures that other people, uh, in, in your activity feed, you can take a look under photos and videos and it has some other options that appear photos you're tagged in. And so that's kind of where I've been, been hunting for this. And so anyway, uh, I thought that, that the op- opportunity to identify on Facebook where photographs it thinks are you are being used, perhaps without your permission, was a good thing. And I wasn't really creeped out. What, what was your response and reaction to that, Jason? Um, well, I, I'm really of, of mixed, um, uh, mixed feelings about this. I do think that there is something to the notion that if you have a lot of friends um, that you know, utilize Facebook with, and obviously there there is a, a certain social component um, to the photograph process in social media, right? That's the the core of it. And if you think back to uh, the early days of the development of something like Facebook, and I'll refer people back to the Accidental Millionaire book I referred to a couple of weeks ago uh, on on the starting of Facebook, that you know it was trying to you know, kind of recreate the social uh, experience of college, right? And 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 what part of that is that you're in big groups that you may or may not, um, you know, necessarily know people from, and you could be, you know, a picture taken of you that you don't even know about, and it would be a good thing to be able to identify, you know, pictures at weddings, pictures at parties, pictures at graduation that you yourself or maybe even a close friend didn't take, but it's a good image that you may want to store and share later. But I do think there is a lot of um, potential abuse that comes along with that. And I, for me, I like, I, I think this is, you know, kind of the future of photographs, right? Like I, obviously artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning will, will, will make this easier. And in fact, um, that's already utilized in, in a lot of existing photo tools. Google Photos utilizes uh, a facial recognition so that I can type in, um, once I identify who my mom is on Google Photos, it can show me every picture of my mom. And so, you know, that that's, I, I think there's something interesting there, but man, I, I don't understand why Facebook decided to go forward with this in light of the fact that the creepy factor is still a big issue in it with the platform. Well, I do understand why they're doing it because as the article points out, Facebook, Twitter, social media platforms, they want us to just share more and more and they want to normalize that sharing. And so any way they can do that, I mean, I I guess I hear what you're saying that by moving forward with this, it might creep people out and cause more people to say, Hey, I'm dumping Facebook. But I think they're just, they're trying to change normal. And I think when you look, especially at younger demographics, I think I think the research and the surveys show that the kids have less uh, concerns about privacy, you know, selfie culture and all of that. It's just it's more normalized. So um, they're just wanting us to, you know, to share more, I think, and to bring those technologies uh, to bear to benefit their platform, which relies upon data and which right. tries to figure out how to get us to spend more time with our face, you know, being sucked into the screen. The right. article says that you can go to settings Face, rec- face recognition, but that is not an option that I have in the web browser version. Now I'll, I'll go onto the iPad version here in a minute and try to look for it as well. But anyway, I'm not seeing a facial recognition option. Uh, there's an option under privacy. There's an option. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a privacy option, but anyway, I'm not seeing the, right. the facial and, recognition. And I, and I do have it on my Facebook, uh, desktop Facebook version, although I did receive a notification about a week ago that this technology was rolling out. So it must be something that they're they're rolling out to different people. So, yep. oh, wow, we have a kiss on the show. Scandalous. Uh, we uh, <laughs> yes, it is the opening of Hairspray this weekend, the senior musical for our for our oldest daughter, and I got to see part of it tonight. And mom and daughter just returned home. So, huh? What do you think you're going to do, Jason? Are you going to opt to opt in, opt out? Have you? Decided? I'm I'm currently opt in because I I want to see this experience. Um, I I don't feel like there's a particular threat of me 
um, you know, being weirdly identified at, at stuff. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, well, actually, you know, there, there's an article I want to also talk about here for a second because I think it also relates to this. So there was a really great article in this morning's Washington Post, and it was so engaging that I, I try not to look at my phone in the morning at all until after I have done, um, you know, uh, morning routines and that I am, you know, either starting to do work at a, at a coffee shop or at work and, um, you know, ready to rock and roll. But there was a headline this morning that was so um, engaging to me that I end up uh, uh, reading the article and and kind of being a little stunned by it. So uh, the the headline is, we studied thousands of anonymous posts about the Parkland attack and found a conspiracy in the making. And it's an, an enormously interesting expose. If you don't understand the world of 4chan and some of the darker alleys of Reddit, um, there is a organized movement, um, and this article talks about this in context of the, the Parkland um, high school shootings. But it's not it, like it's it's it is about that, but it's not really about that because there's been a lot of efforts on the part of uh, darker elements of the internet uh, to organize against. I guess people is the best way to describe it during times of tragedy, and it seems to have a political bend to it. So we don't really talk about politics on the show. It's not what it's really about. So I, I want to kind of divorce the politics out of this for a moment. But this article and the context and talking about the concerted effort against uh, victims of that shooting and how within minutes of the shooting occurring that there were already uh, research efforts uh, related to victims and their parents and attacking various components of this process um, and and uh, utilizing you know pretty aggressive tactics from a social media standpoint in order to uh, you know, terrorize really victims uh, of this terrible tragedy and the reason why I find that to be something that we need to be cautious about, right? Like, um, uh, I, I can think of a really good example of this. I have a dozen teacher friends who are on Facebook under pseudonyms, right? That they got spooked out, you know, in the early days of Facebook and decided they didn't want uh, kids friending their finding them, and yet they still want to engage in the social experience. So I probably have, uh, it's about a dozen folks that are in the teaching industry that, um, that uh, uh, utilize a, a pseudonym um, in uh, this process. So uh, I could see an example of, Wes, when you uploaded a photo and someone who you had no social connection with on Facebook was tagged in that photo, imagine for a moment taking a photo of a teacher who is otherwise anonymous on Facebook, and then suddenly that pseudonym pops up, right? And again, you can turn off this technology, so that's that's a wise move on Facebook's part. But I think, you know, I I I don't disagree with this notion that we that finding ways to connect. Um, I, I I don't find that to be you know itself uh, uh, undesirable. But I just think that it's hard to think through the impacts of things when these technologies are first rolled out. And you know, we, you hear it here almost every week on this podcast, but this is why we need to not bury our, our heads in the sand and start having you know real discussions with kids in schools related to technology ethics and digging a little bit beyond you know the glamour of some of these incredible technologies. Well, I'm reminded I have just shared the fourth, was it fourth, maybe sixth, I guess, presentation um, for parents on digital citizenship in the last month. Uh, last night we had a, a ice day, so uh, one of them last week got, got moved. <clears throat> and I happened to mention in this one, before we talked about group chat and bullying, I mentioned uh, Here Comes Everybody, um, which is one of my favorite, favorite books um, by Clay Shirky. It's a 2008 or nine texts, I think. And he says in some videos that I've watched, he's got TED Talks, um, you know, summarize the whole book, group formation just got way easier. All right, so this is a fundamental characteristic of the internet age, is that we, we can have voice, and not only voice independently, we can have voice together because we can band you know, together with, with like-minded folks, whether that's, you know, parents uh, supporting our, our sports team or whether it's people that want to promote, you know, an anti-Jewish, uh, um, you know, conspiracy theory or anti-Israel, you know, anti-Russia, what, whatever the case is. Oh, and so I, I truly believe this is an endemic, you know, 
characteristic and challenge of the internet age. And I think you've talked about this in terms of like, we're in a, a reset cycle or something like that. So yeah, that, that is a good article and it's unfortunate. And I've been, you know, listening to some different podcasts. The Ezra Klein podcast has a really good interview. I think I just tweeted um, that I was listening to that in the car tonight talking about uh, outrage and how, you know, many platforms are really fueled by outrage and by the outliers. And this is, this is a challenge that we're going to have to try to work out. Um, he has an interview with Amy Chua and she's the author of a book called political tribes group, group instinct and the fate of nations. So yeah, this stuff does talk political. It talks societal, but you know, I, we, we, we need to grapple with this. And will AI come to our rescue? I don't know. But we're certainly seeing, you know, Facebook, Google, um, another article that we can just quickly give a shout out to that's under the same uh, social media heading in the show notes, which, by the way, are at edtechsr.com slash links, uh, is from The Verge today. YouTube says new moderators might have mistakenly purged right-wing channels. And so I think we mentioned on the show last week, Facebook has, has said they're doubling the number of humans that are working on the newsfeed and from like 20,000 to 40,000 people. Of course, hopefully those aren't like mechanical Turk you know, employees or somebody who's just getting paid, you know, pennies on the link or something. But anyway, YouTube is addressing this as well. And there's human beings that are involved and they're, you know, flagging stuff. And I think, Jason, it, it ties to the same kind of 4, 4chan, other, you know, sort of conspiracy theory actors because it mentions, you know, Infowars and Alex Jones and, you know, strikes against them because that. That was part of this whole hoo-ha that said these kids aren't real, uh, you know, victims. They're crisis actors. Kudos to the students for being so articulate, right? I mean, this yeah. is a very powerful example of student voice and, you know, students that were, you know, in some cases already doing things like broadcast journalism and, and honing their skills of public speaking, and then suddenly found themselves thrust upon the world stage. So I think we're going to continue to see this sort of thing happen where the world's attention is focused upon an issue. And I think also it's a cautionary tale perhaps on why none of us really want to be in the headlines of the New York times, right? Or the Washington post or anything else, because if, if you are thrust there, if your child, your student is, then here come the trolls because the trolls are, you know, always looking for somebody to attack, unfortunately, and bring down. And, you know, I'm thinking of my own daughter doing her TEDx, and it's nice to be able to share that and have student voice. But at the same time, I think it's kind of nice not to have that even on front pages of our local news media, much right. less national media, because if we did, then we would probably just invite a lot of potential negative attention. Right. And I would say that that uh, definitely if you don't understand the risk or some of the really kind of terrible um, uh, darker forces that exist on these technologies, please read that article. It, it really is worth your time. And again, it would be in the show notes at our website, edtechsr.com, where we post links to all the stories we're referring to here on the show. But it's worth your time. And, and I think especially since these are a lot of these same tools, are the ones that are utilized by cyber bullies. Uh, you know, definitely educate yourself uh, if you work in, in the classroom environment. So, okay, um, I'm going to take us to a maybe a nerdier turn. Um, this week is Mobile World Congress, and probably since Wes is a, a, a new uh, a convert to Android, he probably hadn't paid as close attention to this important international event until this year. But Mobile World Congress um, is uh, obviously uh, not in the United States. Otherwise, I think you would have heard more about it. I think it's in Barcelona, if my memory serves me correctly. And it is an international conference that focuses on mostly cell phones. And there's a great article. I think it's from it's either today or yesterday at The Verge that talks about kind of the, the best stuff that's going on at Mobile World Congress. I just want to talk about a couple of these for a moment and get a Wes's opinion on them first. Um, it uh, One major trend that a lot of people are talking about is that even um, uh, moderately priced phones are starting to get rid of screen bezels, which would mean the uh, areas outside the glowing part of your screen. And they've been getting smaller and smaller and smaller, even 
on cheap devices, but it appears that in the upcoming year, um, even a lot of the, the mid-range and low-range Android makers are probably going to get rid of, 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 of as much screen bezel as they can and make the experience um, as, as focused on a, a glowing screen as possible. And I, I was thinking about this. Um, and I'm currently using an LG V20 phone that I bought used a couple of months ago that's been a, a great phone for me. Um, but it does have a small top and bottom bezel, but it's otherwise pretty much screen to screen. The case here uh, complicates that just a little bit, but, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, something that's heading to the direction. So now, Wes, that you are an Android dude for the time being, do you find that the bezel-less environment is to your liking? Well, you know, I'm still on the $146 phone, so I'm eyeing these phones and and thinking about you know how how nice they look. I you know they're talking about the the same form factor, but yet more screen. I don't remember what the exact dimensions are, but on yeah. one of those yeah. phones, it was talking about what uh, is it a 5.5 inch screen size, and now it's a 6.2 inch screen. So with my eyes aging as they are, and I don't have my bifocals yet, I've got to go get my prescription. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in that. I don't want the clown shoe phone. You know, I don't think I want the huge thing. But, you know, this, you know, increasing by a few a few centimeters, um, uh, you know, a bit is is really welcome. Um, so I'm definitely looking at that with with care. It was unfortunate to see how much they kind of abused the word AI in their marketing for what was that? Was that Asus that did that with their phone? Um, I think it was. Um, and maybe that was another article that I had looked up uh, about that. I think it was the, yeah, the Zenfone 5. Um, and those are, who are those by? Yeah, it's by Asus. So they were kind of saying, yep. hey, it's all AI. Everything's AI. And then, you know, we're broadly defining AI. Well, you know, not everything, every feature that you have here is, is AI. But the other thing that really stood out in that article were Chromebooks, right? Because we had new Chromebooks Thanks. announced. Asus has announced these. And I am very interested, uh, I mean, potentially in, in having an upgraded phone, but I'm really interested in the, the touch technology and the bet that Microsoft and other Chromebook manufacturers are making on combining the laptop, you know, with a convertible yoga style um, device, especially with a better, you know, touch stylus experience. And so Eric Kurtz had recommended a, uh, I think it's the, an Asus spin, um, spin 11 Chromebook because it had, had this better, uh, stylus. And so the ones that Lenovo announced as well, that not the low end one, but the, the middle and the upper range one, which is just a $350 device, uh, evidently has a much better stylus. So, Jason, are you ready to uh, shop for more Chromebooks and iPhones, especially <laughs> for the notch? Because that article talks about the notch copiers, even though they don't have the iPhone X's face recognition and um, all of that. But it has the notch. So are you right. itching for an Android notch phone? Uh, no. Um, first, related to the Chromebooks, I do think that that it is really exciting that there's more form factors coming out for Chromebooks. And the one everyone's talking about uh, with the Lenovo Chromebooks and the Asus Chromebooks is there are flip Chromebooks that seem to be realistically compact uh, tablets as well that focus on pen input. And we haven't talked a ton about digital inking here on on, on the podcast, but it's definitely a movement that's, that's catching fire. I feel like the Microsoft OneNote crowd is, is help pushing that certainly in in a in a more uh, broad stream direction. But I think if uh, the Chrome environment can start bringing more of that functionality into classroom Chromebooks, and both Lenovo and Asus's Chromebooks both together are doing some uh, pretty interesting things there. Robust, well built, relatively inexpensive, decent hardware Chromebooks. I think is the right direction. Um, when it comes to the phone notch, yeah, that's that's one of the things that's always kind of weird about the Mobile World Congress every year is that you do get a handful of uh, you know uh, B and C tier Android manufacturers that are trying to um, you know I guess copy. Uh, the big things of, of 2017. What I think is interesting about that is that it appears to me that, um, uh, you know, that iPhone is getting copied or iPhone X is being co- getting copied. And honestly, I don't know a lot of love for that device. It, it's expensive. A lot of people don't like the notch. It's very un-Apple. I, it doesn't really matter that much to me, but um, it is interesting that uh, Asus in particular released a phone, and there were a couple of, 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 of C and D range manufacturers that also uh, released those as well. 
Um, one other trend that was dominant in Mobile World Congress that I still don't know what I think about is that a number of, of other phone manufacturers announced phones that ditched the headphone port. And uh, the one that was most talked about um, were Sony's and Nokia's Android phone releases that didn't have a, uh, a microphone port on it. But I've never had to deal with that at this point because all my phones do. But um, I, I like Bluetooth. Bluetooth has gotten better since Apple did get rid of the headphone jack. I feel like the standard and even the cheaper Bluetooth devices seem a little more consistent than before, but it's not, I'm not a huge fan uh, yet, at least. So are you looking forward to the day where it's Bluetooth only, Wes? No, you know, I... I... I think that that is a great legacy device and there's a, there's a universality to that, right? And just, just as there has been for the USB port in terms of compatibility. Um, and so no, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to that, but I do want to defend the iPhone a little bit. Peg, Peggy's still in, in shock that I'm, you know, an Android phone user at this point. And you know, Hey, there's nothing to say. We can't, you know, switch, switch back and forth, but, <clears throat> um, the iPhone 10, you know, Apple had record sales and, and while they announced and we talked about the article a couple of weeks ago, yeah. reducing the amount of orders from, I think, 40 million to 20 million with their, you know, chip manufacturer that may have just been, you know, chips for the phone, uh, which they, they manufacture their own chips. But anyway, they were, they were cutting down, uh, because of the increase in price, you know, and it is really popular. I know folks, I have family members that have it, that love it, uh, the quality of the camera. Um, just, you know, the overall quality of the phone. So I think that we probably hear the negatives amplified a lot in the tech news media. We talk about how much people like to gripe about Apple and, you know, they're, they're top of the heap in terms of, um, revenue and, um, in terms of overall market share though, they're not, are they Jason? Doesn't the Android phone, uh, worldwide, you know, dwarf Apple? I don't, do you know, have any idea yeah. what, that's, what is that statistic? I don't know what the statistic is, but it's it's uh, I, I think it's it's by by multitudes now, and and part of that is, is there's just no low cost option um, in the Apple family. I mean, you, there are a lot of iPhones in use in places that 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 can't traditionally afford amongst the uh, you know average population that, but they're oftentimes you know very dated, very used devices. For example, I um, I read a uh, this was somewhere on Hacker News a couple weeks ago. I should have actually posted this article about that there are a lot of iPhone three and th- or three three and three Gs um, that are still um, in use in the developing world uh, at you know, and, and there's a great aftermarket parts market for that because they're, you know, they're iPhones. I mean, the, the OS now is not supported anymore. Apple, in some cases, has stopped signing certificates, which means you have to do workarounds to get access to apps. But it's a, it's a reality because people want Apple devices. I mean, that's, that's a, they've got a cachet that's, that's a, um, unparalleled uh, in, in anywhere else in electronics. So, yeah, I think it's interesting, too. And, um, you know, I will say that... Um, I'm not in the market for an iPhone uh, at this particular point, but every time I pick up my wife's, it's always the battery life is great on it. It is a very, uh, it's a very smooth uh, 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 interface, and I will still always like iOS as a great operating system. I just dropped another article related to this, um, which is that 5G is starting to roll out, and so this is from TechCrunch yesterday. These will be the first cities getting 5G from Sprint and T-Mobile. And I think one of the things to remind ourselves, and this is this relates to this big investment, right? If you're putting this $1,000 investment in this phone, you know, how ready are you to turn that over in two or three years? And, you know, there's a number of people that are on those plans that, that let them switch out, and, um, you know, I guess people do that with cars and leases and things like that, too. But of all the phones being sold in 2018, none of them are compatible with 5G wireless. I was telling our 14-year-old today, I was asking her if she knew about 5G, and I said, you know, a DVD movie right now is about two and a half to three gigs. It's pretty big. And that'll take a while, like maybe 20 or 30 minutes, to download off of 4G LTE. And what they're saying, and I think we've talked about this on the show, is that that'll download in two to three seconds over 5G. So we continue to talk about phones and, you know, what we're going to, you know, what we want, what we're going to do and what we invest in. I do think that practically speaking, we need to 
to consider our refresh, you know, on a, on a family, just like at school, we talk about, are we on a five-year refresh? Are we thinking about Chromebooks on a three-year refresh? You know, we all need to think about our refresh because, you know, not only will you reach a point at which the software will not support your hardware, but, you know, when it comes to connectivity like that, I mean, heck, I am definitely going to want a 5G compatible, you know, phone when the 5G service comes to Oklahoma yep. City. So Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I, I, I would be in that market, too. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that our proclivity, West right now for cheaper Android devices are going to be a, a far cry um, for getting those updates. So that, that is a reason to go with a more premium phone. So uh, a lot of other interesting little things out of Mobile World Congress. Uh, the, the other one that I want to mention, just because it's kind of funny, is that Nokia, which is not Nokia, actually. Nokia is a brand name that is have been licensed out to a number of other companies. Uh, the one that made a splash in Mobile World Congress is HMD Global, which uh, owns a license to release things in the Nokia brand. And they released a, I guess I don't even know how to describe it. It is a, an old school phone um, with modern guts in it. And it's the Nokia 8110. It's uh, less than $100. It has 25 days of battery life, um, which is pretty interesting. And although it doesn't run, it runs a custom operating system. It does have Google Maps, the Google Assistant, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Snake, for those of you that remember that from the good old days, and an LTE connection. So um, if you're looking for an old school phone or, uh, you know, uh, want to get rid of the distraction of your cell phone, although for some bizarre reason, it would still have Facebook. So I guess you could you could keep up on that addiction um, as much. But that could be an interesting alternative for you, too, if you're done with super smartphones. I'll do a quick article, and this is a shout-out to Peggy George, who's in our chat room tonight and actually had mentioned this article last week. This is from The Verge on February 16th. Embedding a tweet could be copyright infringement, says a new court ruling. And goodness gracious, surely this is going to be rejected. You know, um, EFF calls, well, um, Forrest's decision rested on two blockbuster tech industry lawsuits. One was a 2007 case, Perfect 10 versus Amazon, where a court ruled that Google search could show full-size copyrighted images as long as it was simply hot-linking them from other sites. This established something called the server test, which protects sites that display copyrighted content stored on someone else's server. The EFF calls the server test, quote, a foundation of the modern Internet. It provides clear guidelines for liability and means sites can't be punished for content that's beyond their control. I don't know if we had the article last week, but there's something that Google's actually just changed in terms of images and the ways that they're, you know, not yes. having those separate, trying to hurt that a little bit. So anyway, hopefully that is not going to prevail. Um I'm kind of, you know, and this will be for, for U.S. law. We're, we're seeing back to that Facebook thing, different laws in different countries playing out where, you know, there are stricter rules on the collection of biometric information, for instance, in right. Europe. And so, you know, and even here in the United States, we mentioned on the show several weeks ago how this Google app on the, for the art, right? That you can take these selfies yes. and Google will, uh, it's a Google arts and culture app and they'll tell you what, you know, art you look the best as, or do you look the most like, and it's kind of funny and fun, but you can't do that in Texas. And I think maybe Michigan as well, because of the laws on biometrics, I had to install tunnel bear and, you know, VPN as if I was in New York city. And then I could use the Google arts and culture app because I happened to be in Texas at that time and it was banned. So anyway, those, those kinds of things are certainly not great for the internet, which was built on the idea of interoperability and it doesn't matter where you are, you know, packets are, are treated in a neutral way, which actually yep. Jason might be a segue to the net neutrality article. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so the said has taken up net neutrality and what is interesting about this that I, I think will be different than when the FCC ruled on net neutrality is that I think you're going to get a lot more industry arguments based on whether or not it's a good idea to, um, uh, to, to, 
utilize net neutrality rules uh, uh, or not. And something that's really interesting is that um, now two states, Montana and I want to say Vermont, maybe it was Maine, has also taken up the the, the uh, mantle of net neutrality. Montana, you may remember Montana's governor, um, Steve Bullock, announced that uh, no Montana uh, 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 state funds would go to a telecom company that didn't utilize net neutrality rules. And one of their states taken us up on that. And I, I think that's a, a great... Um, a great movement in that direction. But now that the Senate is doing it, um, uh, that that's going to, you know, obviously cause that debate to, to, to be a little more open and wide. And so um, I, um, uh, we, we have just a, 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 a few short months of debate on this and it seems like there is um, a, a, a ticking clock right now, whether or not there'll actually be legislation related to this, the Senate, you know, is, is supposed to be a deliberative body. That's the, the role, uh, the rules are very forced into that, which means that it's not necessarily easy to get something in an open debate on the floor of the Senate. And so this could very well die um, in committees. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a, a, the debate starting now. And that means you should, if you are a net neutrality advocate, um, or, or you're against net neutrality for whatever reason that, that Wes and I would like to talk you out of. But if you are you know, concerned about this issue, now is the time to contact your senator to see if you can get them, you know, to, to think in that direction. I will tell you that Montana's two senators um, are um, on opposite sides of this issue. Uh, uh, one of our senators is, is a clear uh, 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 proponent of net neutrality. And when I contacted the other senator, uh, which I contacted both uh, uh, in December of about this issue, the other one said that they supported the actions of the FCC to eliminate the rules uh, more for for innovation purposes, of which I think is um, not a great argument. So keep an eye on that, and if it ends up being something that's that's a little more formal than wrangling about debate, then please contact your representatives and let them know what you think. And it is going to be a long fight, and it may end up waiting until an administration changes and the majority in Congress changes, unfortunately, um, because with the the uh, majority that Republicans have in the way that this, you know, tends to line up along partisan lines and the fact that, that uh, our chief executive is li- would, would be likely to, to veto it, even if it did pass, it's close in the Senate, but it probably is not going to, to uh, get through the house. And even if it does, it's not going to get by the president yet. The fight needs to go on. So. Yep. You're here. Advocacy there. Hey, I'd like to come to, if we could down to the security uh, topic and, uh, not maybe the best source in the world that we've heard of big law business from February 20th. Uh, but this is an article, uh, cybersecurity enforcers wake up to unauthorized computer access via credential stuffing. And we've talked about this before, but I hadn't heard of this term credential stuffing before. And what this is, it says upwards of 80% of people are estimated to reuse credentials across at least some of their online accounts. And so this means if you have that favorite password and you've used it forever and you've used it lots of places, you know, once the target hack happens, the Equifax hack, whatever kind of breach that actually gets your email address and your password, then other folks can grab it and, and use that immediately. They, they write programs and you know, algorithms that go out there and test these things. So on that same note, Engadget from February 23rd has the article that one password now lets you see if your password has been leaked. And that is based on the website we've talked about before, I Have Been Pawned, which is a really good one to visit. Put in just your email address and they'll tell you how many you know known breaches your email address is in and whether they've actually obtained your password and other kinds of information. So Jason, where are you with credential stuffing? And do you feel it part of your digital moral imperative to encourage others in your life to use unique passwords with a password manager? I, I think I've eliminated the vast majority of credential stuffing on myself, right? So I, I think I'm using unique passwords, but the only way I've really been able to do that is by utilizing a password manager. And my preferred password manager is, is uh, LastPass. And I now have three separate LastPass accounts, one for my personal accounts, one for my work accounts, and one for a small business I run that I also maintain a, a Google and Facebook presence on. So for me, it's the challenge, I think, is, you know, there have been a couple of times where, um, you know, like, for example, for me, it's not just using unique passwords. I use randomly generated 20 character passwords. I go to a password generator. I, 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 they're, they're impossible to remember. 
even if I wanted to. But I feel like, especially for school, right, the, the work I do as part of my day job at the Montana Digital Academy, that that's, that that's the minimum I should do to make sure I don't get hacked. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good direction there, but I'll be honest, I, I don't know other, a lot of others that are, and, um, I'm kind of surprised that schools are not, uh, being more proactive uh, about this. And I know Wes, uh, to compliments to you, I know you've been working with your staff, um, at your institution to institute, uh, two factor authentication. An interesting tidbit related to that is that I visited, uh, the Montana State um, uh, education office. It's, it's our office in public instruction. I was working with the state AP gifted and talented and AP coordinator. And I noticed that the state of Montana is now forcing, um, RSA encryption with a, uh, it's a USB key that you have to have in addition to, um, your, uh, your password, which means that they're there. That's a, a serious amount of security at that point. And it, having that physical component that you need to be able to do that. And that's, you know, I, I think that that that's wise direction, um, for, for one and all. So are you doing anything beyond a password manager, Wes? Have you considered anything like a, a physical key? I've used a physical key. We have a, one of our, our teachers, actually, who doesn't have a, a smartphone or televisions at home. And, you know, we needed to have an option for him. And so uh, it was about $12, bought him a key. And so I've, I've tried a couple different ones. Um, actually, the one I was using the most is so cheap, and it, and it finally fell off of my keychain. And so I haven't, you know, bought, bought another one. But it's nice that you can have multiple forms of, of verification. I will say, though, T-Mobile, and I'd, I had another technology director in Oklahoma actually message me after I was in Ohio and did a presentation about privacy security and mentioned two-factor. There had been a Reddit thread about uh, T-Mobile customers falling prey to hackers yeah. who were using information supposedly from the Equifax attack in terms of getting their socials as well as email and then being able to get access to their accounts. There was also an article, I don't have it in the show notes, about some kind of hack that was giving people access to anyone's T-Mobile account, which has been taken care of. Anyway, I was waiting for T-Mobile to formally come out with information about this, and they did, and they have me- and they messaged all users, and what they recommended is that you called in and set up, I thought it was going to be a separate pin, it just seemed like it was a new pin that we set up, um, and actually, now that I think about it, I better make sure I wrote that down and put that in our our, our um, one password. Um, and I because I can I can remember what how I how I came across that number. I think it was a six digit number. But yeah, um, the the danger there was that you know people if you were using your phone back to what you're talking about with Montana state government and why they might be doing the actual RSA you know. USB key instead of saying use your phone <clears throat> is that it is possible and these kind of things have been documented where people call up your cellular provider they know your number and if they can convince that person to yep. you know reset your um, your SIM card you know then they can hijack your number and then gain access to everything that you have on two factor so folks who are wanting to be very conservative about that are recommending people do not use the phone that they use other means. Um, at this point, we're still, you know, fine with folks using their phone. That is a risk, but we feel like it is, you know, much better to be using two-factor with your phone than not using any two-factor at all. But it probably right. is something, Jason, yep. that I should think about, you know, sharing a session at our uh, state ed tech conference and and talking about because I definitely, you know, agree 100% that this is the future and it's something that needs to become the new normal for passwords. Yes. And so we are going to continue working towards the goal of single sign-on in as many sites as we can uh, using those Google credentials, not only to make things easier for faculty, but also to allow for the two-factor element. Because if, if we're single sign-on with Google, we talked in some depth a long time ago, I think, about OAuth and perhaps some vulnerabilities that exist there uh, when you're using that that uh, multi-site authentication. But anyway, we are going to hopefully continue to walk down that road. And when I, yeah, we do need to encourage others to as well. Yep, absolutely so. Okay, um, let's see. What else should we talk about? And then we can get, oh, let's talk a little bit about Chromebooks. Um, 
there, we mentioned most of these stories in context of the Mobile World Congress, but uh, I, I do want to note a couple of things related to Chrome OS that's, that's also related to Android. And so uh, Lenovo and Acer, or Asus, excuse me, are both releasing new Chromebooks. There's a lot of interesting bits about that. Um, but something else happened that's related to, to Android. Uh, we've mentioned Project Fuchsia here on the, the program. That is Google's new operating system that they're working on. And it's kind of hard to tell what it is because it works on a Pixel book. It also works apparently on a Nexus phone. But apparently, um, the Boy Genius report, uh, which today reported on, on February 28th, that there's kind of a quiet movement happening to kind of move away from Android as a primary um, operating system. And instead, it appears that Fuchsia might be the future for Google. And so um, Boy Genius talks about the fact that uh, that Fuchsia is, is something that the Google is, is, is very much developing and in development. They also released something in Mobile World Congress called Flutter, which is a, a product that allows coders to code apps in Flutter that work apparently seamlessly both on iPhones and Android devices, but the, the language itself or the, the platform itself is fairly native to both operating systems, which means you don't get the funk sometimes of, of joint development can create, and that apparently is something that's also very closely related to Fuchsia. Um, and it, it seems to me that that it may be that Google is going to try to start over again here, in part because they are running into some practical problems now. You know, we're, what, 10-plus years, well, almost 10 years into the Android experiment. Um, Android's the most popular operating system on Earth for mobile devices, and yet there are very clear issues with Android. And so I point you to the other article I found this week, um, which is from um, 9 to 5 Google, and I think it was today when they reported on this, but um, they took a, a comprehensive look at security updates, and it turns out really only two manufacturers are, are doing even a kind of good job um, at rolling out Android security updates. One of them is Google, right? And that's who Google develops for first, right, is Google release phones. And the other one is the Essential Phone. The Essential Phone was made by the guy that created Android, right? So we have a isn't bunch of like Android black, nerds. That's like the black phone or something, right? Isn't that like super yeah. expensive? To, to yeah, well, it, it was super expensive. You can now pick one up for $499. And let me be clear, I've been very tempted to purchase the essential phone. It looks beautiful, and they keep rolling out these great updates to make the hardware even better. But even manufacturers that had one point or another been famous for, for quickly releasing um, updates, it's terrible. And, um, you know, the vast majority of, of Android phones don't have an update to the uh, vulnerabilities that were announced at the turn of the year in January, for example. And even... You know, primary or, or uh, decent phones. This uh, LG V20 is considered to be a, 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 a pretty big uh, phone for LG, and I'm still one version back on Android. And I, although I recently received a security update on this phone, it only took me to uh, December 2017. So I. You know, there's something going on here. I think the fact that, that either Google can't deal with things like the, the fragmentation issue on Android or won't deal with it, um, you know, tells me that maybe they're just going to start over again, right? Like they're going to develop an operating system from the start that works both on laptop-like devices and mobile devices and is built from the ground up to be really security conscious. So, I mean, I love Android. I think Android's a great architecture. I, I love, um, um, you know, utilizing an Android phone. I feel like it gives me a lot of options as an end user, but maybe this is the only way to do it. Just move on completely to something else. Well, I'm excited about it because of the Microsoft experience, right? Look how security vulnerability plagued most organizations yeah. are today because of the legacy of Windows and because of how difficult and hard it has been and it still is to get enterprise IT to let their clutches go of, you know, the Windows architecture. And there are so many bugs and, you know, Microsoft has has attempted and continues, I think, to to walk down that road of how they can keep their existing users, you know, but bring out a more modern and secure 
operating system experience. As an IT director, to talk about the educational lens, this is one of the biggest draws of the Chrome environment is that it right. is a reboot and we're not building it on top of Windows and we're not building it on top of Mac OS. I mean, I don't know how many folks out there remember Mac OS 9, 8, 7, you know, I think I might have started my Mac life maybe with some OS 6 still going on, but OS 7 was, uh, or Mac, uh, Mac OS 7 was really the when I got into the internet with, you know, modems and TCP IP and all that great stuff. Sure. Um, I think it's very exciting to, to for Google to be looking like that. And what a responsibility they have too, right? As the as the shepherd, creator, and, and gatekeeper of the world's most popular mobile operating system, you know, that's a, that's a tremendous responsibility when it comes to security. So I'm glad to see them doing this. And I think we also need to keep in mind when it comes to Internet of Things, we need to pay attention to companies and products that are experienced with security. Uh, Peggy yeah. mentioned in the chat, and I heard this this morning on NPR as well, on my Google Home morning briefing, <clears throat> that uh, Amazon has just purchased this Ring doorbell company. And, you know, probably what, what the NPR report said is that they're going to keep their name but further integrate them into the Miss A, I won't say her name, uh, universe. And so anyway, you know, hopefully Amazon is going to take just as much as Google is the, the whole idea of security seriously and we're going to, to have some ways that companies are encouraged to bake good, secure operating systems, you know, into their devices, into the Internet of Things. And that has to mean updates that are not, oh, gosh, yeah, uh, you know, someday maybe I'll download a firmware update and update my router. No, the router needs to to be updated. And, and at some point there needs to be a push, not just a pull to that. So. I think you should Absolutely go true. for the essential phones, Jason, and you should give us a full report here in a few weeks. If you're looking for that authorization from the wife, tell her <laughs> that your partner in EdTech News right. has given is not sending you a check, but has given you the firm, you know, go ahead. Right. Wes has, has green lighted the, the essential phone. So um, what else should we pick up on, Wes, before we get the geeks of the week? All right. Um Let's see. I, there was an article you put in from The Verge about Microsoft's Slack competitor might get a free version yeah. soon. This is February 27th. And, you know, I have not made the jump into Slack. This is for Microsoft Teams. And I think it is an important element of a lot of products that there's a free tier, right, to be able to try them. I've been using different project management software tools. And Asana was something I've played with for over a yes. year. Now I'm into Trello. And I might become a Trello, you know, paying customer because the um, way in which we're able to manage these products with projects with milestones and to-do lists and all that stuff is pretty awesome. So is this going to entice you to embrace Microsoft Teams? And what is your history with Slack, Jason? Have you used it? Do you use it? Um, I, I have used it in context of an experiment inside the office because I thought it might be something that we could get into um, at, at the Digital Academy. And honestly, it never took off. And we've tried Trello and it never took off. Um, I tried Trello personally. It never took off. And part of the reason why is that I am pretty infamous. I carry around a, uh, a notebook. Uh, it's a composition notebook, like the 99-cent composition notebook you buy at Staples. And about six months ago, I did go on Etsy and buy a nice cover for it so that I could, it looks a little more professional in meetings um, as opposed to, you know, my ratty notebook that I would dig out with, you know, a bunch of binder clips and, and, and paper clips and rubber bands around it. But um, I, I'm a I very much prefer a paper to-do list, but I, I will say I have used Microsoft Teams in context of um, uh, projects I work on with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, which is a, a Microsoft shop, and it's pretty good. I mean, I, 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 it, it allows that team, which is uh, I'm a very small part of, but there's a number of remote workers there that work together on on pieces, and I do think that. Um, it, it's a, it's a good product. And it also is a critical part of Microsoft's classroom, uh, environment. Microsoft Classroom is being either depreciated or is depreciated and Teams is going to replace that. So Teams really? and One, yes, Teams and OneNote will work together in context of, you know, kind of the Microsoft Classroom environment. And, um, interestingly enough, I didn't put an article, um, in today 
because I, I couldn't spot one that, that was really what I was talking about. I received an email today saying, um, I think it's Hangouts Chat is Google's um, competitor for these kind of chat channel programs. And uh, it is now available to us um, in our, our Google Suite for Education account. And I think it's rolling out widely across enterprises and across uh, G Suite for Education accounts. So uh, we'll, we'll try that and see if that's the magic sauce for us. But um, I think it's good. And I think you're right, Wes. Having a free tier on that particular kind of tool, I think it's pretty important. All right. Well, shall we geek of the week it? Sure. Um, I'll do. I have a couple quick ones here. Um, the first one is that uh, Google announced earlier this week, and I had an opportunity to um, play around with this. Uh, the the article is actually from the Google blog. Maybe it's it was just today. Um, but they're offering now a free online class called a machine learning crash course or the MLCC. And um, there's been a lot of press about this in the last uh, uh, day or so. And it's, it's, I think it's worth your time. I only spent about 20 minutes with it this morning. I was so impressed with the early part of it, at least that um, I, I will probably, you know, once I'm done with my current, um, you know, big project in my life, which is my doctoral dissertation, maybe take a look at, at going through this, um, um, a MOOC style course uh, very seriously. And so that's something for your consideration. And then I, 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 I may have mentioned this before, but if I didn't, it's a really interesting development. I was talking with a friend of mine today that just bought a used premium Chromebook. It's the HP Chromebook uh, G1, HP Chromebook 13 G1. It's one of those metal MacBook um, Air-like devices from HP that has a um, a lot of RAM and a nice fast mobile chip in it. And one of the things I told him was that uh, something that I had discovered a couple of months ago is that if you uh, like a nice big trackpad and you are a Mac user and have a lot of the older style Apple Magic Pads sitting around, the ones that use two, two AA batteries, those work just fine with Chromebooks. And in fact, it reads the multi-touch, which means you get all of the advanced Chromebook um, multi-touch gestures. So that means using three, or I'm sorry, uh, four fingers to swipe up to get the kind of the expose view. Uh, you can switch back and forth uh, with tabs with two fingers. Um, uh, it's a, a really great experience. And for some reason that I can't begin to describe, um, there are drivers for that device um, in Chrome OS and it reads that as a multi-touch device. It just pairs up via Bluetooth and you're good to go. So if you happen to have one of those sitting around or it's an old box or if you're an IT person, you have a couple of those sitting around that you know have been long abandoned for the newer, bigger versions of that. You can also buy them for absolute dirt cheap um, on uh, used on eBay. Then those work great with Chromebooks. So consider that as a uh, a device you could carry around with you to add more mobile functionality to your Chromebook. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, mine is quick. It's uh, an, an actual add-on for Google. It is called Orange Slice Teacher Rubric. Um, remember, an add-on is a little different than an extension. Extensions appear up there on your your uh, Omnibar or next to the Omnibar. Um, an add-on is going to be visible inside your Google Doc uh, after you install it from the menu bar. <clears throat> but what this allows you to do is to really quickly assess rubrics that you create yourself for student projects. And so I shared this with our computer science teacher, and, and he was interested, and we kind of watched part of a video that Eric Kurtz, shout out to Eric, uh, because he had talked about this in a, in a workshop I attended of his in Ohio. And uh, just, you know, using rubrics and being able to uh, have a way to quickly uh, assess them is is pretty awesome. So there's some other tools that are more canned, but this one just, you know, you, you have to make the rubric, but as long as you have in the upper left corner rubric categories, um, then it is going to allow you to quickly score that and put that at the bottom of, well, you have to copy and paste your rubric into the bottom of the Google Doc, but then you invoke this and it allows you to quickly, you know, highlight and select the scores on the different you know, rows and, and columns of your rubric. And then at the top, it'll go ahead and put the grade and you can decide whether it's it's holistic or whatever else they call it. Um, two different ways to, to display it. And anyway, pretty cool. And these kinds of tools for Google are just phenomenal. And so I would love to know if anybody ends up using that. And of course, we would love any feedback that anybody has who is listening to the show. Welcome to always join us live, but 
we we have uh, have more folks tuning in to us via our recorded archives. So let us know if any of these geeks of the week end up making it into your actual life and workflow. Okay, Wes, where can people find you on the vastness of the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org uh, is the blog, and I am uh, continuing to work on our digital citizenship website for school, which is digsit.us. How about you, Jason? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. Um, I blog a bit at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And I would actually also like to announce something that was just announced uh, uh, yesterday. I, Montana Digital Academy is part of the Virtual School Leadership Alliance, which is a group of um, um, over a dozen state virtual schools that work together on curriculum and advocacy related to online learning. And we announced um, a partnership uh, yesterday. Um, VLLA will be joining up with uh, Quality Matters, which is an organization uh, 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 on the East Coast that, that works on development of good quality online courses. And we are engaging in a um, in a uh, project where we are taking over the standards from the INACAL, which is the uh, K-12 Online Learning Advocacy Group. Uh, we are taking over uh, online uh, course teaching and learning standards, and we will rewrite those standards together and carry on that project from INACAL. And so uh, if you're interested more about that, virtuallearningalliance.org is the VLA's website. You can find them on Twitter, VLLA Online. Um, I happen to have something to do with that Twitter. Twitter account, and we'll be announcing in coming days more about those initiatives. But this action here is not uh, the VLA. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a podcast that broadcasts once a week uh, from the cozy confines of Missoula, Montana, Oklahoma City. You can join us at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, or 3 a.m. UTC. We are live via YouTube. You can go to um, uh, edtechsr.com and get to that live link every week. We love to have people join us, uh, join the chat room. If you become a regular, uh, we'd love to invite you on the show sometime to talk tech with us. Um, or you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're in most podcast directory. In fact, it's getting to the point where even new apps that I try out for podcasts have a podcast directory that contain this podcast. Or you can go to our website and download a tiny little digital copy of the auto each and every week. So please join us in future weeks. Uh, we encourage you to stay safe out there on the internet. And good morning, good day, good evening, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody.